interesting, wasn't it, to say the least? That last little phrase, love so amazing, so divine. A love so amazing, so divine. And it demands my heart, my life, my all. There's nothing else that I could give. <laughs> well, thank you, Christian, for helping us worship this morning like, or this evening like that. And uh, it was uh, mentioned earlier this morning as well as this evening about our sister um, Sonneborn. And, um, you know, she had played a, a very instrumental role in my own personal life in my early walk with the, uh, with the Lord, Miss Lillian. I remember walking into Hollywood Bible Chapel, um, raw material, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, grungy, uh, just politically incorrect when it came to kingdom stuff. <laughs> uh, um, I mean, uh, still buzzing from the previous 15 years of abuse. And uh, she encouraged me in so many ways. She had invited me to uh, Bible studies that she held at her house. Every time I saw her, she just was, she seemed like she was so happy to see me. And I'm like, really? <laughs> you know? And it was just those little characteristics, I think, the few people in my life that those characteristics uh, were stabilizing factors. You know what I'm saying? Stabilizing factors. Sometimes we just feel like, well, what do I have to give? You know? And I think of Ms. Sonneborn, even this, you know, when I walk into the chapel, um, she's still tickled to see me. And I know I'm funny looking and stuff, but, you know. <laughs> But I think she's encouraged because maybe she's seen some of the fruit of her labor in being kind to me as she was and encouraging and, uh, and uh, all the fruits of my labor, as it were. <laughs> so uh, anyway, press on. We love the Lord, right? Well, open your Bibles with me to... Um, Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to conclude our meeting this evening, the Disciples' Prayer. We're going to touch on the final aspect of it, the um, aspect of man's need. I'm going to try to dispense with some of the introductory stuff that I had to sort of set, to in a lot of ways, to set the uh, tone some of it I'd still like to maybe um, introduce. And time permitting, or if you're patient enough with me at the end, there's a little story that I kind of hope I can uh, uh, share with you that was shared with me um, regarding, these, uh, regarding the Lord's prayer and the Lord's work in our life. But we've been learning how to pray, and... Uh, uh, you know, you're only getting a tip of some of the studies that I've had the privilege of being involved with. And I hope and I encourage you yourself 
to go through the Bible and to look at those prayers in the Bible and to see the design of prayer in the Bible and how it opens up a newness in our life and our relationship with the Lord. In this prayer, we noted the two sections, the first one dealing with God, and we dealt with that this morning, the glory of God. And I mentioned that we just uh, touched on a dot regarding the glory of God. It's so massive. We could have went on and on. And, you know, on the flip side, this evening we're going to talk about, I just don't want to trip over these wires here. We're going to be talking about man's need. And I think likewise, <laughs> as massive as God's glory is, likewise, so is man's need. And we're going to touch on as much as we can this morning. I think I began and introduced in our introduction, and I asked a question, is, is there a wrong way to pray? Could our prayers just kind of be muttering, useless verbiage in so many ways? Is there a wrong way to pray? And I think that we've come to an understanding that if our prayers become man-centered, if our prayer becomes self-centered and selfish in any sense, and that way, I think our prayer is not like the Lord said and would not have the characteristics of his kingdom. And yet so many people still approach prayer that way. We approach God in prayer to get something, to have him fix something. And I think, you know, in our culture, in our society, uh, we've become very self-centered, questioning God, you know, and I think that's a pretty serious sin. In our culture, we are pragmatists. That's our society. We're pragmatic about things. We take a quarter. No, I'm sorry, you don't take quarters anymore. We take a dollar and we put it in a vending machine and we want something. You know, we, we stick it in there and we want a product for ourselves. And consequently, potentially, our prayers could be the same way. You know, I don't think, for the most part, the saints here would identify with that kind of prayer. But in general, Christendom can be that way. And that's why... In John chapter 14, our key verse, And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that I will do, the Lord Jesus said, that my Father may be glorified, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Take a look at a couple of slides. Here, if we got them. <clears throat> Am I hitting the right button? Look at some of these, just kind of help us to introduce them. There we go, man's need. Okay, the first thing we want to look at here is the end, the end of our prayers. This ought to help us to define what prayer is. The end of prayer, and this is from an old saint, he said, the end of prayer is not so much tangible answers as a a deepening life of dependency. 
It says the call to prayer is a call to love, submission, and obedience. It's the avenue of sweet, intimate, and intense fellowship of the soul with the infinite creator. Now just think about that. That's our access point in our relationship with the Lord. Let's take a look at man's need. This evening we're going to look at three of them. The last three, the first one we're going to look at is give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And the statement I want to make here is God is a supreme issue in all these things we do. This has been my mantra, and it will continue to be that in our prayer lives, and I am exercising my own prayer to make sure that God is the supreme issue. And not until God is in the proper perspective can man pray properly about his own needs. Does that seem logical to you? We see God in his right place, and then we can approach him and know how to approach him. Prayer is for God, and we outlined it like this. Our Father, to art in heaven, that's the paternity of God. Hallowed be thy name, the priority of God. If you haven't got this already, thy kingdom come, the program of God. Thy will be done, the plan of God. Give us this day our daily bread, the provision of God. Forgive us our debts, the pardon of God. Lead us not in temptation, the protection of God. We're going to be considering the provision, the pardon, and the protection of God. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The preeminence of God. Well, first of all, we want to concentrate on this one. Give us this day our daily bread. And what does that mean? What is that saying to us? In our culture, in the United States, in our affluence as it is, we say, give us this day our, can we really say that? Give us this, and maybe you might say, well, um, when it comes to this point in the prayer, you kind of just have to imagine you don't have any food. You know, you kind of have to imagine that you're going to be hungry and you don't know where your next meal. You think maybe that, no, that's, that's, that's too far-fetched. That's not what this prayer is saying. You know, you don't, it's not that we have to imagine that. That's too unreal. Does that statement say anything to us? Give us this day our daily bread. David Myers wrote, in, he wrote a book called The Human Puzzle. I looked at a little bit of it. And it says, he wrote a part in it, he says, Some petitionary prayers seem not only to lack faith in the inherent goodness of God, but also to elevate humankind to a position of control over God. Does that sound familiar? It's a certain TV station that might propagate that. The scriptures remind us that God is omniscient and omnipotent, the sovereign ruler of the universe. For Christians to pray as if God were a puppet whose strings they yank with their prayers seems not only potentially superstitious, but blasphemous as well. And I say amen. Amen. So when we say, give us this day our daily bread, what are we saying? We're going to look at four aspects. The first one we're going to look at is our substance. What is the substance? The substance is what? Bread. 
bread. And I don't know about you, but um, you know, I go into the Publix and I go down the bread aisle and there's all kinds of bread. Wheat bread, rye bread, all different wrapped up bread, all different colors, all different seeds, all different. There's, I think someone had said, there's bread ad infinitum, ad nauseum, and on and on. So, so what is this that we're talking about, bread? Well, it's not just talking about bread in the terms of bread. Give us this day our daily bread. It's talking about the physical. You see, man can't even be a spiritual being until, unless God takes care of his physical. So when we say, give us this day our daily bread, what we are doing is we are asking God to supply our physical need, right? Bread is all that physical area. Very simple. Not that complicated, right? You know, the Bible does tell us that God does give the necessities of life. In Proverbs chapter 30, maybe we can turn there real quick. I like this, this proverb. It was written by Agar and um, Proverbs, Psalms, I went the wrong way. I think my Bible is missing Proverbs. Well, I got it written down here. I can't locate it here. <laughs> well, I got it written here. It says in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8 and 9. Well, Agar, he says to um, many, to, oh, here it is right here. Gee whiz. This is what happens when you don't take a NAP. You know what that is? A nap. I didn't take a nap because I was trying to get this together. Proverbs chapter 30, look at verse 8. In verse 8, it says, remove, Proverbs 30, verse 8, it says, Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, right? Feed me with the food allotted to me. In other words, he's saying, don't give me too much, and don't give me too little, lest I be full and deny you, and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal, and profane the name of the Lord our God. Just give me food that I have right now. You know, you know and that's the heart of this statement. Give us this day our daily bread. Not too much, and not too little. Not that complicated, right? The next thing we want to look at is the source. Who is the source of our daily bread? Thomas Watson, which is he's a, an old Puritan, um, he wrote in his, in his book, actually in um, his book regarding the Beatitudes, he says, if all is a gift from God... Do you see the odious ingratitude of men who sin against their giver? God feeds them, and they fight against him. He gives them bread, and they give him a front. How unworthy is this? Should we not cry shame on him who had a friend always feeding him with money, and yet he should betray and injure that friend? Thus ungratefully do sinners deal with God. They not only forget his mercies, but they abuse them. As Jeremiah 5, 7 says, when I had fed them to the full, then they committed adultery. 
Thomas Watson says, Oh, how horrid is it to sin against a bountiful God to strike the hand that gives to you. And we do that, don't we? We do that. So God promises to forgive us. Go back with me, or to provide for us, to give us. Go back with me to Genesis. How does he give to us? Genesis chapter 1. Not Genesis chapter 1. Look um, with me, Genesis chapter 1, verse 29. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields and seed which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food, and to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life. I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning was the sixth day. So what we see here is, is that God had made the food for us, and it was good for us, right? And we see in the beginning that he made herbs for us, right? And he provided food. I mean, just think of it. What, you, know, you know what God could have done? He just could have made us to all eat mud. How would you like that? I mean, you think of all of the varieties of food that we have to eat. We're talking about bread. Just look at the bread aisle, you know. And when it comes to food, I have um, three seasonings I like. Salt, pepper, and garlic. Don't put anything else in it. But God's provided all this other stuff for us, because some of you have different taste buds than I do, right? And there's been so much that he's provided. And he did it, and he said, it is good. So we have... A provision from God in the Old Testament. But go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And we're going to look at a, a New Testament passage regarding food for us. 1 Timothy chapter 4. And verse 4. It says, For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is to be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Okay? Now, do you see what, what we have here? Every creature is good. First of all, these foods are sanctified for us. And they're sanctified in two ways, right? First of all, it's very clear. In Genesis, they're sanctified by the word of God. God created them, and he said they were good. So it's good, right? And they're also sanctified here. It says in verse, uh, in, in verse 4, they're sanctified by prayer. And how are they sanctified by prayer? Look at this. When it is received in verse 4 with thanksgiving, okay, or in verse 3, look at verse 3. It says, it says uh, and God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So when we receive it with thanksgiving, right, it is sanctified. So the food that we have, the source is God, and it is sanctified in two ways. One, it is sanctified by God, by his word, and two, it is sanctified by thanksgiving and the way we receive it. So we see the substance is bread, the source is, is God, and we're going to look at the supplication. The supplication is give. Very simple. 
give, the supplication. And by the way, do we thank God for our food? I know some people will say, well, you know, I don't eat a meal without giving the Lord thanks. And sometimes I'm pricked to my own heart when we sit at the table. We say, okay, it's time to give thanks. Let's give the Lord. Oh, uh, uh, thank you, God, for this food. You know, do we really recognize that he's the source of our food, that food that we eat? Now, what is the supplication? It's the verb give. And by the way, this is the heart of the petition. This is, is the kind of, this is what we want to major on here. Go with me to uh, Psalms chapter 37. Psalm 37. We're going to look at a couple of verses here. I got them written out here in verse 22. Psalm chapter 37, verse 22. It says, For those blessed by him shall inherit the earth, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. Right? And this is David writing this psalm. And he says, The steps of the good man are ordered by the Lord. And he delights in this way, right? David says, you know, the steps of a good man are ordered. He delights in the way. And though he shall fall, it says, though he shall fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. For the Lord upholds him with his hand. So there's a promise there, right? That for the righteous, the Lord will uphold you. But for the wicked, there's a curse. Right. And though the righteous may fall sometimes, he says he shall not be utterly cast down or utterly destroyed for the Lord upholds him with his hand. And then look at this. Look at this next verse in verse 25. David says, I have been young and now I'm old. Yet, what does he say? I have not seen the righteous man forsaken, nor his descendants begging for bread. Now that's pretty good, isn't it? That's a promise from God. That the righteous will be provided for. The righteous will be provided. Now that's a good thing. But look at the next verse. Look at verse 27. With that, knowing that the righteous will be provided for by God, that God will provide bread that when our petition, give us this day our daily bread, is heard, this is what should be the outcome. Depart from evil and do good and dwell forevermore. It's reason enough to depart from evil just knowing that God would provide bread for us. So we see the substance is bread, the, the source is God, the supplication is give, and the seekers. Who's the seekers? You might know this one. Us. Give who? Give us. You know, and I can't stress that enough. It doesn't say, give me my daily bread. And nowhere in this prayer, this outline of the prayer, do you see a singular pronoun. There's a community there. It's, it's, it's the Christian community. Give us our daily bread. You know, the plural, it's, it, what it does is it precludes all selfishness. 
In a lot of ways, I really believe that the prayer give us, it embodies the Christian community. And it's saying, in effect, that I could never have an abundance while my brother has less than enough. Right? It's the Christian community. It's, it encompasses the whole concept of sharing. We think of the Acts, in the book of Acts, and how... You know, during that time, is it, is it in Acts 4 when they all came together? Is it Acts chapter 4? And they all came together and they gave together. You know, at that particular time, do you know, in Jerusalem, there was a lot of famine going on. There was pressure going on. You know, there wasn't the affluence that you were thinking of. And that's one of the reasons why the church was huddled together so they could provide for each other. And so we see that the seekers are us. It's plural. It's not just me, right? And lastly, we look at the schedule. And what's the schedule? This day. Give us this day, right now, just enough for me right now. The concept is very simple. And, you know, and I think the next two petitions that we come up to, and this might help us a little bit, the next two petitions that we come up with, for, forgive us our sins as we forget, or, for, or forgive us our debts as we forgive those who've trespassed against our debtors, okay? And then the next one is, is lead us not into temptation, okay? This one has to deal with the physical. And when it comes to man's need, the first one deals with physical, and the second two deal with the spiritual, and I think in a sense, one of the observations that I've been able to make with this, it's kind of like this. It's like, give us this day our daily bread, and then we move on. You know, the physical provision for man is the basis, the most basic need that we have. And it's the lowest need of humanity, the physical need. It's there, and it is a need. But we say, give us this day our daily bread, and then we move on. We move on. And so that's what we're going to do right here. We look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It is the most essential thing for our debts to be forgiven. Why? Because it keeps us from internal hell. It gives us joy even in this life. It's the most blessed thing because it introduces into us a fellowship with God that goes on forever. And it's the most difficult thing. When we ask God to forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, it was the single most difficult thing that an eternal God had ever done because it cost the Son of God his life on the cross. It is the most essential, the most blessed, and the most difficult thing that was ever done. We see that sin has a twofold effect. The first one is it damns man forever. We understand that. And that's the future effect. That if there is sin in our lives, there is an eternal separation from an eternal God 
So it would damn man forever, it's future effect. And it has a present effect too. It robs us of our joy. It robs men of the fullness of life, doesn't it? I think of David in Psalm 51 after he had sinned in that very, in that situation with Bathsheba and then later on uh, committing murder to Uriah the Hittite. In Psalm 51 he would recognize his way and he would plead unto God. He would say what? I need salvation all over again? No. He would say restore unto me the what? The joy of my salvation. The joy of my salvation. So when we come to this point, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, it is essential. And it is the most blessed thing, and it was the most difficult thing that God had ever done. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I'm going to look at four things, and then we're going to look at four statements, then we're going to take four words, and I kind of hope you guys stay with me, okay? First one is, sin makes man guilty and brings judgment, right? Second one is, forgiveness is offered by God on the grounds of Christ's death. One way and one way only. The scriptures tell us there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Thirdly, confession of sin is necessary to receive that forgiveness from God. And this is very basic. Most of us are very familiar with this. And the fourth one, forgiving one another is an essential part of receiving forgiveness for ourselves. And we talked about that a little bit before, right? Let's look at the first one, sin. Sin. The Bible tells us very clearly in Romans chapter 3, and that's where we're going to be for the most part, in Romans chapter 3, that sin makes us guilty. Turn there with me if you would. Romans chapter 3. And I think the reason why I'm having such trouble with this Bible is that the binding had fallen out of it. This is my excuse. And I put it on the shelf for a long time. And then I saw it there, and I said, that's a good Bible. And I went and got some glue and put the binding back on it. So now the pages are hard to turn. Okay, that's my excuse. Romans chapter 3, look at verses 10 and 11. In verse 10, it says, and it is written, there is none righteous. And I like this next statement, because I'm sure there's somebody in here that's going to say, well, what about the Pope? <laughs> right? Or what about so-and-so? Or what about me? I'm not that bad. He says, there's none righteous. What? No, not even you. There is none righteous. There's none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. And he goes on, he says, they've all turned aside. And sin makes us guilty. It makes us guilty and brings judgment. Basic. That's pretty basic. We don't need to talk about that a whole lot. Okay? Let's talk about the next word, forgiveness. Now, this one might be a little more difficult, right? Forgiveness. Okay? Forgiveness, there's, there, we're going to talk about two aspects of forgiveness. Okay? There's judicial forgiveness, and there's practical forgiveness. Okay? Now, judicial forgiveness, we can see it in Romans chapter 3, in verse 21. Judicial forgiveness is, is when, the, when the judge lays the gavel down 
and says, forgiven. It's offered by God on the grounds of Christ's death, right? God is holy and a just God, and he looks and he sees sinful man, he sees sinful woman, he sees a sinful society, right? And forgiveness is offered to God. Though man is guilty, there's a loving, forgiving God who offers forgiveness to sinful man, right? The Bible tells us, and we talked about it a little bit this morning, though he's, man is guilty and he stands in judgment, God's forgiving, and it says that, that um, he'll bury their sins in the depths of the sea. We mentioned that this morning, didn't we? He'll bury it in the depths of the sea. He'll remove them as far as the east is from the west, right? And all throughout the prophets and the apostles, the scriptures continue. They unceasingly describe God as a forgiving God. He wants to forgive, right? He wants to forgive, but he just can't just forgive us because he's also righteous and he's just, right? Because he's righteous and he's just. So Christ took our place and forgiveness is offered on the grounds of Christ's death, right? So we have the two, two forgivenesses. One is judicial, and the other one is practical. Now, judicial forgiveness is that one we just talked about. It's the full, complete, positional forgiveness of the believer. When we put our trust in Christ, when we recognize our lost estate and his sacrifice, the judge says, you are forgiven. Right here in Romans chapter 3 and 21, it says, now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, right? It says that, that it is immediate, it is complete, it is judicial. Okay, that righteousness, it's, it's never going to go away. So we're righteous before God. So if that's true, why do we have to keep coming to God? Why do we keep coming to God and say, forgive us our debts? You know, if Christians are praying this prayer and their sins are already forgiven, why do they keep coming? And I think it's because of this second one, and that's practical, or there are some who have called that paternal forgiveness. And if you'll turn with me to John chapter 13, that's probably the best illustration to this kind of forgiveness. John chapter 13, and you're probably very familiar with this passage. And here we have Jesus in the upper room with the disciples. And uh, it says in, in um, John chapter 13, <clears throat> we're going to look down here in, in verse 5. And he says after that, it says, or go back up to verse 3. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he'd come from God and was going to God. In other words, he recognized the hour had come, his work was finished. 
He rose from supper, he laid aside his garments, he took a towel, girded himself, and after that he poured water into the basin and he began to do what? To wash the disciples' feet. Now, you know, here he is in the midst of these disciples, and by the way, they were very self-centered, selfish, possessive, they were indifferent to Christ. You know, the Lord Jesus at this particular time recognizes that his crucifixion is at hand, and they don't even flinch. What were they doing prior to this? They were arguing who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, right? Self-centered they were, arguing, proud, egotistical. They were a very ugly group they were, <laughs> you know? And here they are in this room, right? And the Lord takes off his garment, and he begins to wash their feet, right? And uh, to wash it, and Peter, what does Peter say? He came to look at verse 6, and he came to Simon Peter, and he said, Lord, huh, are you washing my feet? You're not going to wash my feet, you know? And I think to some extent, Peter's convicted here. Because I think if anything, who should be getting their feet washed? Not the disciples, right? They should be doing it. So there's some conviction here on Peter's behalf. And Jesus answered and said to them, what I'm doing, you don't understand. But you will know after this. You will understand this later on. Okay? And so he goes on, and it says here, um, and then, then Peter says, No, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, and he says, Well, if I don't wash you, you have no part on me. Right? He says, No. For the, could you imagine telling Jesus, No, you're not going to do that? First he tells Jesus what not to do. Right? And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, now he's going to tell the Lord what to do. Wash my hands too, and my whole body. And Jesus is like, you just don't understand. You don't understand what's going on. And then Jesus said to him, he, and this is important right here. Jesus says to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, right? And you are clean. But not all of you, because he knew that one of them was going to betray him. Peter, he says, oh, you'll never wash my feet. And um, the next thing we see is that he's simply saying to them, once you've been cleaned, once you've been judicially forgiven, once you've recognized the grace of the Lord Jesus, once the judge says, forgiven, and you have the righteousness of Christ, you don't need to be forgiven again. All right? It's not that. You don't come for judicial forgiveness, but there is a practical forgiveness that goes on every day. Doesn't it? When we walk around in this world, pressed by the world, you know, and we want to stay in full communion with God, we come to him each day and say what? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The practical purging has to be repeated every day. So when we look at forgiveness, we understand judicially we can be forgiven. And again, we're reminded of David when he would say what? 
Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And he was seeking the same thing. In 1 John 1, 9, we read, But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He is faithful and righteous, forgiving us our sins and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. But look at what verse 10 says. If we say we have not sinned, what? We make him a liar, and his word's not in us. So we look at those two principles, judicial forgiveness and practical forgiveness. Let's look at this next one real quick. Confession. Now, we've taken these from those principles. Confession. Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 13 says, Cover your sin and you don't prosper. Cover your sin and you don't prosper. Whoever confesses, forsakes, and confesses and forsakes shall have mercy. Right? So confession, purging of the soul, that's the plea of the position. And this next one, number four, is forgiving. Forgiving. Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15 tell us that if we don't forgive others, then he's not going to forgive us. Right? And there are those who will say, well, does that, you know, does that make me have, you know, a, a works righteousness? Well, I think the idea is this, is that if we're not forgiving others like, that's, like we talked about before, like the, uh, like the master who had a servant who owed him so much money that it was impossible to pay him back. But the servant would say, well, just have mercy on me, have mercy. And he was like, well, it was impractical. And you think about it, and the little bit of study I did on it, that, that guy who owed the master so much, it was ridiculous that he would even owe that much. He could never pay it back. But then when he was forgiven, what did he do? He went back to those who owed him, and he beat them, and he took them to court. Why? Because he'd never really understood what forgiveness was, right? So he could not be forgiving, okay? So when we forgive, when we're forgiven, it It's the character of saints. It follows the example of Christ. Even as as God in Christ has done what? Forgiven us. It expresses the highest virtue of man. And it frees the conscience from guilt, doesn't it? As well as it delivers us from chastening. So forgiveness has a lot of good qualities to it. And we're going to move along here. Sin Bottom line is, sin is unquestionably the major problem for which there's a need for a solution in the life of man. And forgiveness is man's deepest need now and in the future. Very good. Now, the last one, lead us not into temptation. We're going to go through this very, very quickly. Okay. This is God's protection. God takes care of our daily bread, right? That's our physical need. God takes care of sin, the sin of our lives, by forgiveness. That's our spiritual need. And God takes care of our moral standard of our life by guiding us away from sin. And that's what we find here. He takes care of our moral life by guiding us away from sin. Turn with me real quick, if you would to James chapter 1. And we're going to talk about this temptation. 
Lead us not into temptation. And there's so much to go. Does God tempt us? And we're not going to touch on all of that, but we're just going to touch on a couple of little characteristics. I'm going to try to stay closer to my notes right here. Or, I'm sorry, did I say First Peter? I meant James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 14. It says, But each man is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. All right, now you get that? Each man is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and he's enticed. Now, that means basically that we are drawn away from our internal drawing because we're all what? Born in? Sin. We're broken. So there's an internal drawing, all right? It says that we are drawn away when he is drawn away by his, his own desires and enticed. But you know, there's another drawing away too. And I think that we can kind of put this in parenthesis. And it's that external pull by Satan. There's an internal pull and then there's that external pull by Satan. You know, man sins because they're tempted, and they're tempted internally by their very own lusts. It's not God. And externally, they're enticed by Satan. And, of course, the Bible says, then when lust conceives, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. Now, that's where we're at, right? But look at this. Look at this next verse, okay? Verse 16. Do not be deceived, he says. Don't make a mistake. Don't be in error. He says, do not be deceived, my, bro- my brethren. Every good and perfect gift comes from above and comes down from the fathers of life, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Don't make a mistake. Remember this. Every good and faithful thing comes from God. And this is a very practical matter. Okay. How do we handle it when we're in the middle of a temptation? What do we do? You know, when the temptation comes, when we feel it coming, there's a trial. There's, you know, maybe someone died in our family or you lost a job or you're in an argument with someone in your family and there's this trial that we're going through. How do we handle it? What do we do when that time comes? You know, sometimes it's financial, sometimes it's emotional, psychological. And we say, all right, Lord, what are we going to do? And that's, there's that internal pull. And then on top of that, there's Satan on the outside beginning to hit us with all those things. Well, you could have this and you can have that and you can do this, you know. What do we do? Turn with me a couple of pages over to James chapter 4. And this is very practical. James chapter 4 verse 7 gives us just a very simple word of what happens. And we don't have time to go into detail. And I'm going to wrap up our thoughts right here. But in James 4, 7 it says this. Submit yourselves therefore before God. Submit yourselves before God. Right? And so you say, oh, well, that's nice. (laughs) But what does that mean? What does it mean that we submit ourselves before God? Well, 
It's very practical. We enter into a situation or a trial, and what we do in the middle of that trial is we begin to order our responses to that trial according to the principles of the Word of God. And, of course, you have to be familiar with the Word of God, right? We begin to apply those principles, and that's how we submit ourselves to God. We apply the principles of God, and what happens when we do that? What happens when we submit ourselves to God? What happens to the devil? The Bible tells us that he'll flee. And, of course, that basically sums up the prayer. I know we ran through it 90 miles an hour. You know, and, of course, there's a little doxology on the end. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And I don't know if some manuscripts have it in there and some earlier manuscripts don't. So I don't know if it was really in there. We already spoke about that before. The one thing that I do know is that it is true. His is the kingdom. His is the power. His is the glory. And I believe it, right? And I believe it. I just wanted to real briefly read and maybe sum all of this up, if I can. There was a missionary in um, Pakistan. His name was uh, Philip Keller. And um, when he was uh, a little boy, he had come across Jeremiah 18:2, and it says, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. And so it kind of stirred up his, his uh, curiosity. You know, what does that mean, arise, come to the potter's house? And so he went down to a potter's house to kind of find out what the potter could teach him. And um, this is what he wrote. He wrote this. In sincerity and earnestness, I asked the old master craftsman to show me every step in the creation of masterpiece. On its shelves were gleaming goblets and lovely vases and exquisite bowls of breathtaking beauty. And then, crooking a bony finger toward me, he led me the way to a small, dark, closed shed at the back of his shop. And when he opened its rickety door, a repulsive, overpowering stench of decaying matter engulfed me. He says, for a moment I stepped back from the edge of the gaping dark pit in the floor of the shed... This is where the work begins, he said. And kneeling down beside the black, nauseating hole with his long, thin arm, he reached down into the darkness. His slim, skilled fingers felt around the, the, amid the lumpy clay, searching for a fragment of material exactly suited to the task. I, had, I, I add special kind of grass, he said, to the mud, I had special kind of grass, and as it rots and decays, its organic content increases the colloidal quality of the clay, and then it sticks together better. And finally, his knowing hand brought up a lump, a lump of dark, smelly mud from the horrible pit where the clay had been trampled and mixed by his hard, bony feet. With tremendous impact, Keller says, the first verses of Psalm 40, 40 came to my heart. He brought me up out of an horrible pit, out of a miry clay, out of the miry clay. 
As carefully as the potter had selected the clay, so God had selected me. And then the great slab of granite cut from the rough rock of the high Hindu Kush mountains behind his home began to whirl quietly. It was operated by a very crude treadle-like device that was moved by his feet, very much like an antique sewing machine. And as the stone gathered momentum, I was taken to memory in Jeremiah 18. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheel. And what stood out most before my mind at this point was the fact that beside the potter's stool on either side of him stood two basins of water. And then he goes on to tell how that all the while that the wheel was turning with the clay, he kept dipping his hands in the water, and then he would mold the clay, and then he would dip them in the water and mold the clay. And never would he mold without water because it would stick to his hands, and then it would ruin it. And so his hands always had to be wet. And he said, it was fascinating to see how swiftly but surely the clay responded to the pressure applied through those moistened hands. Silently, smoothly, the form of the graceful goblet began to take shape between his hands. And the water was the medium through which the master craftsman will and wishes, his will and wishes were transmitted to the clay. His will was actually being done in earth through the water. And immediately he says, I thought of the water of the word, which is God's agency for doing his will in earth. When God touches my life, he said, he touches me with his word. It is the water of his word that expresses the will of the master and finds fulfillment in fashioning man into his choice. Suddenly, to his astonishment, he noticed the wheel stopped. Gently, the man reached in and he picked out a piece of stone. And then he began to spin again, and it stopped again. And he reached again to pick out a larger piece of stone. And he noticed now that with the tenderness of his hands, he could feel every rough spot, every stone, every small grain of sand. The two he had taken out, well, they were too large, and the goblet was marred. And so he reached to it, and he crushed it with his hands, Keller said. Oh, that's sad. What will happen to that, he asked. And he said, well, I'll make it into a common finger bowl. It'll never be a goblet, he said. No, it's, it's too scarred. And I thought again of Jeremiah 18.4. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. Seldom, he says, did any lesson come home to me with such tremendous clarity and force. Why was this rare and beautiful masterpiece ruined in the master's hand? He thought about it. Because he ran into resistance. And he said, it was a thunderclap bursting in my mind. Why is my father's will, his intention to turn out truly beautiful people, brought to naught again and again? Because of our resistance. Because of our hardness. And despite his best efforts and endless patience with us, and besides the water of the word applied to us, we end up nothing more but a finger bowl. The sobering, searching, searing question I had to ask myself in the humble surroundings of that simple, pot, simple potter shed was this. Am I going to be a piece of fine china or a finger bowl? Is my life going to be a gorgeous goblet 
fit to hold the fine wine of God's very life from which others can drink and be refreshed? Or am I going to be a crude finger bowl in which passerbys simply dab their fingers, fingers in briefly and then pass on and forget about it? It was one of the most solemn moments of all my life, and I prayed, Father, thy will be done in earth, in clay, in me, as is in heaven. Prayer is not so much to change my circumstances, is it? I know we've been a little long tonight. I apologize for that. But I think it's important for us to go through these. Sometimes it takes a little while. Prayer is not so much to change my circumstances nearly as it is to change how I relate to them. You know, in my prayers, we want to learn to draw nigh to God, don't we? We want to learn to worship him. And we do that when we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we go on and we ask him, Give us this day our daily bread. And he does. Forgive us our trespasses, our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And he does, doesn't he? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And he does. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Even though it may have been a little muttered this evening and mumbled, we pray, Father, that you would have used it to encourage and to strengthen us to create in us a desire to reach the throne of grace in a proper way. I know even in a personal family relationship, I don't necessarily appreciate my children running in, interrupting me, informing me of things, and telling me of what someone else did and how bad things are. And so, Father, likewise... When we approach you, first of all, may we remember to affirm who you really are, that you're a holy God, that you're a king, that you have a plan, and you've included us in your plan as citizens of your kingdom. And we love you very much, and we thank you for being a God like that. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.